I'm Mike Ward and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a video series brought to you by DRG Parto Clarivate. This video series examines the healthcare ecosystem and the current business challenges and opportunities that it faces. In each episode, I'll be talking to uh, key industry leaders um, across the whole of the industry and effectively talking about you know, how they're anticipating and regarding the various um, uh, market dynamics that they, they face at the moment. Currently, our series is uh, focusing on COVID-19 and the numerous challenges to uh, the industry that uh, the pandemic's unleashed on all healthcare players. In line with this, I'm delighted to be joined by special guest uh, Stephen Frutman. Uh, Stephen is the president and CEO of Onconova Therapeutics. Uh, Onconova is a publicly quoted uh, company, uh, clinical stage biopharma, based in um, Newton, Pennsylvania. And the company has already created a pipeline of target anti-cancer agents designed to disrupt specific cellular pathways that are important for cancer cell uh, uh, proliferation. Uh, the company's lead program uh, is uh, a, a compound called uh, Rigosertib. Um, it's a small molecule that inhibits cellular signaling uh, in cancer cells by acting as a RAS uh, mimetic. Uh, it's in phase three uh, clinical development for the treatment of high-risk myelodysplastic uh, syndromes and the company's conducted trials with two other research compounds uh, and also has a preclinical compound uh, with a CDK46 um, uh, and uh, ARC5 uh, inhibitor. Um, Stephen, I, I hope you're well and uh, thanks very much for um, sort of taking the time to speak to us today and hope everybody's uh, keeping safe. Thank you so much for this opportunity to speak to you, Mark. Look forward to our conversation. Before we talk specifically about um, the compound, uh, Rigosertib, uh, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, what have been the sort of the most immediate, um, what's been the most immediate impact that the uh, COVID-19 has actually uh, had on, on, on the company? Thank you. So... These are obviously interesting times, and interesting times to conduct clinical research. Our research is global. We are in uh, many countries across uh, the globe, the same countries that are affected by COVID-19. The major impact as hospitals are putting their resources into combating COVID-19 and taking care of patients who unfortunately are infected by COVID-19. Clinical research at many cancer centers around the world have stopped. Mostly new research programs, programs that are about to be initiated, have been put on the back burner because the staff that does clinical research have now been employed to take care of COVID-19 patients. So that's how it's impacted on our trials. Patients who are already on our research drugs continue to be 
uh, placed on those research drugs, because obviously a patient with a cancer is on an experimental agent, it's extremely important to continue that. And we don't believe COVID-19 has impacted on that. What it has impacted on is our clinical research associates having entry into the hospitals, just like families have been restricted to enter the hospitals to prevent more broad COVID-19 infections. Research staff have also been uh, negatively impacted on their ability to enter to get our data. But a lot of the data is electronic now. So rather than going into the hospitals, we do have access to the electronic databases for patients who are on our research drugs. So, so you've had to sort of re-engineer or sort of adapt the processes that you would have usually, usually used because of that, those restrictions. Yeah, so we're a very highly regulated industry, both in the US and Europe, and the regular regulation authorities have actually been helpful. It has to do with how data is validated, that they usually like to go in, see source documents for a hospital record, and they've eased up on some of those regulations and have accepted electronic review of data as opposed to asking a personnel to actually enter hospitals in the middle of an epidemic. So there have been ease of the regulations when the health authorities have tried to be helpful to companies who are doing research in cancer therapeutics. So we have changed our practice uh, and time will tell uh, when we actually can validate the data, how the effects, the long-term effects of, of the uh, a pandemic uh, to influence a clinical trial. Yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, pre- presumably you're going to have to sort of slightly you know, factor in, um, you know, when you get your readouts, the fact that this, these, these trials were taking place during uh, this, 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 this crisis. Right. So the current trial that we're conducting required uh, 360 randomized patients, for instance. And we were fortunate. Uh, we we uh, finalized the 360 patients in mid-March. Right when the epidemic, you know, was starting to peak, actually, but the patients were already, the the majority, the vast majority of those 360 patients were randomized over the past few years, and the last few were randomized, you know, right up to the epidemic hitting the hospitals, and the hospitals closing, essentially, to new clinical research. But we were already fully accrued. So it didn't really impact on our accrual to the trial. We also are conducting what I'll call a survival trial. How long do patients live on our experimental agent, Regocertib, compared to those who are given the control of what the physicians want to treat their patients with? But because it's a survival trial, we continue to receive data about the status of the patients. Do they continue to do well on either arm or have they succumbed to their underlying disease? So we know that data. Is the patient alive or not? Which a little requires a little more work in the era of COVID-19 is to confirm 
the date of the event, because that may be hard with the hospitals closed. We know, is the patient alive? Is the patient not alive? Confirmation of that date is very important. And we have been fortunate, but it takes a little more work and effort to get the hospital to report those dates, because again, they're distracted by more pertinent things in the modern era of COVID and taking care of the COVID-19 patients. Right. And uh, what is the sort of the timeline or sort of your, your anticipated sort of your readouts or of, of data? So this pivotal trial in a disease called myelodysplastic syndrome, which is a bone marrow disease, we anticipate a pivotal data readout before the end of the year, before the end of 2020. And we continue to monitor the patients. Uh, the key point of getting the data readout is when we have 288 events. Uh, we have reported that we have 85% of those events already. And when we hit 288 events, we anticipate that milestone will be before the end of 2020. Right, right. And you're, you're already sort of thinking about the sort of, the, the sort of commercialization um, of, of these compounds. You've, you've got a, a, um, some commercial agreements already in place. One of those was uh, with a Chinese pharmaceutical company called Hanks Pharmaceuticals, which um, I think covered greater China. But in March, um, that, that deal, which I think was only signed last year, was, was, was terminated. W was that a, a consequence of, of, of the pandemic? That's a great question, uh, Michael, and coincidental as well. The name of the company that you cited is Hanex Pharmaceuticals. Coincidentally, they're lo located in Wuhan, China, where supposedly the epidemic, the global epidemic initiated, was started. So uh, we've been working with Hanex uh, for a number of years. In fact, the other compound we are working on which you refer to as the CDK46 and ARC5 inhibitor is actually being made in Wuhan, China. So the, uh, the agreement was terminated for regocertive because of the difficulties going on in Wuhan, difficulties of the FDA having access for in routine inspections, to the manufacturing plant in Wuhan. So we made a decision to move that manufacturing plant specifically for ON123300, uh, our CDK46 compound, to a site outside of China. And during this period of time, also made a decision to uh, look at other companies to help us commercialized regocertive in greater China. By the way, when you mentioned we are preparing for commercialization, I want to mention to you that we have nominated a very influential commercial expert to our board in preparation for the final readout of this pivotal trial. 
uh, this individual knows this space of mild dysplastic syndrome very well. There's only one class of drugs approved for mild dysplastic syndrome in the world. The class is called hypomethylating agents. And the most commonly used agent in this class, azacitidine, and our new board nominee was influential in commercializing azacitidine across the globe. And she now is joining nominated to join the Ankinova team as a member of our board of directors. And we look forward very much to her joining and giving us leadership for future commercialization. Okay. Um, and let, let's just talk about um, Greater China and commercialization plans there. So uh, you said or said that you're, you're looking for, is it one partner or or multiple partners for, 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 for Greater China. And what, what does a potential partner actually have to bring to the table? So we are looking, typically we'll, you know, we'll be looking for one partner to commercialize our research drug in China. As you could imagine there, for a small biotech company like Ankanova, there are tremendous language barriers, uh, regulatory barriers. So what we're looking for is a company based in China who understands expertly the requirements for getting a drug approved in China. Typically, that involves conducting a clinical trial with patients who have MDS in China. Uh, the company would also understand and have a relationship, just like we at Ankinova have a relationship with the U.S. FDA, a Chinese company would also uh, understand uh, the requirements and have a relationship with the health authorities in China. So we're looking for a partner who is expert in the development and commercialization of hematology oncology drugs in China, because the, the, the trial has to be conducted there at cancer centers in China, and also understand the regulatory requirements for approval of regosertive in Greater China. Right, right. So, um, I mean, you know, China is becoming an increasingly important market. We can sort of see lots of you know Western companies you know, looking to either get into uh, the market themselves or, or through partnerships. Based on your experience of working with sort of your Chinese companies and clearly, sort of, you know, other sort of Chinese units, what, what, what are sort of the key differences from sort of working in that Chinese environment to, say, you know, other markets? I mean, you, you're, you're very active in, uh, you've got a partner in Latin America. I mean, what are the sort of the key differences? Well, a lot of the differences, I think, have to do with language. Um, and it's difficult. You know, most of us don't speak any form of Chinese, Mandarin, Cantonese, or any of the dialects. So we're typically dependent on our Chinese partner to speak in English so we could 
speak to each other. But even when English is well spoken, and even when our colleagues in China may have been spent time in the US or in the UK for education, you know, unless you're face to face, even using technology, uh, the accents are very difficult. So there are ways around it. We tend also to correspond using written language, not just verbal. So we keep minutes. So everything that was we believe was agreed to is documented via minutes. We have agendas so we can look at the agenda, make sure it's completely covered. So I, I think that's the major difference. People are people across the globe. Scientists are scientists, researchers are researchers. I think the major difference in my experience in dealing with Chinese companies uh, is the language barriers that are involved. Uh, other than that, you know, the, the science is expert, uh, dedication is expert, and we, and we look forward to continuing to work with HANEX on ON123300 and as well identifying a new partner who co can commercialize Rigo Certum in Greater China. Right. Okay. So, so coming back to uh, you know, COVID-19, um, you know, you've obviously had to deal with the, you know, the immediate issues. What, what are the, sort of the long-term sort of challenges that you think that you might still face? I, I'm just trying to sort of think of you know, what the pharma space might look like in a, in a post-pandemic world. So I'll focus again on my area of expertise, which is cancer. <clears throat> so cancer patients, those who are on commercially available therapeutics or those who are on experimental drugs tend to be elderly and tend to be immunocompromised. Their immune systems may or may not be normal. So those two criteria, age and a compromised immune system, puts these patients at tremendous risk for COVID-19. In addition, some of the therapies that we use to treat patients are immunosuppressive by themselves. So it's not just the disease, it's the therapeutics we use to treat the disease. So I think COVID-19 has forced the hematology oncology community to be even more observant of their patients because all of these patients, even before COVID-19, are at risk of infection. The patients at Onconova we currently are dealing with, myelodysplastic syndrome, have an abnormal bone marrow. They don't make normal numbers of circulating white blood cells that fight infections in the normal host. So we are very careful to monitor these patients. They're already at risk for pneumonia. As you know, COVID-19 now has been recognized. A common cause of morbidity is pneumonitis. So at the first sign of a cancer patient getting a pneumonia, 
in the current era rather than doing other bacterial and viral and fungal analysis for the cause of the pneumonia, now COVID-19 testing should also be routine and required. So it's broadened the infectious risks that these patients are placed under. So uh, finally, um, you know, as we sort of, you know, look forward, what, what, what are sort of the next sort of your news events that we're expecting to hear from, from Onconova? So I'll take that as a two-pronged answer. Regocerter's mechanism of action is a RAS mimetic. So RAS, R-A-S, is the most commonly mutated gene in cancer. Regocerter modulates the mutated RAS pathway. Speaking of COVID-19, we're about to open a new lung cancer trial for KRAS mutated non-small cell lung cancer who've progressed on the standard of care. We anxiously look forward to opening that trial, but because it's a new trial, due to COVID-19, new trials are on hold at most of the cancer centers uh, in the U.S. So patients are waiting to be entered onto this KRAS mutated non-small cell lung cancer, and we look forward to the initiation of that trial. There are other diseases that we anticipate studying with regocertive that are, uh, have mutations of the RAS pathway. Another one is melanoma. There are patients with a bone marrow disease called multiple myeloma who also have mutations of RAS. So hopefully our readout in myelodysplastic syndrome will be positive. By the way, we will be presenting our data on RAS mutations on the current INSPIRE trial at the European Hematology Association meeting, which is the most prominent hematology meeting in all of Europe. That meeting will take place in June. It's now a virtual meeting, actually. So it'll all be online, but we will be uh, having it. We have an acceptance, which is prestigious to uh, uh, present our data on RAS mutations in mild dysplastic syndrome uh, for four patients randomized on the INSPIRE trial. The second uh, thing I want to highlight to you is we are on the brink of beginning COVID-19 preclinical studies with our research compounds because we believe based on the mechanism of action of our drugs that are already in the clinic, there is theoretical reasons to believe that these drugs may interfere with COVID-19 infection in human cells or replication of the virus in human cells. If the lab studies suggest that our compounds may 
have efficacy against COVID-19 in the test tube, then we plan to also initiate clinical trials against COVID-19, but these are all very early in their development. So, so, so what part of the sort of the, the COVID life cycle um, are your compounds targeting? Well, COVID to uh, have replication are dependent on a number of mechanisms that it takes over from the human cell. And we believe based on the mechanisms of how two of our clinical compounds work, that theoretically it may prevent either viral infection, meaning how a virus gets into a human cell, that's the infection, and then how it replicates to copy itself in that human cell and make many viral copies which are released into the body. So based on those mechanisms of how a virus enters and replicates, we will be studying our compounds to see if it prevents either viral entry and or replication. Right, right. Okay, well, Stephen, thanks so much for, for taking the time to, to talk to us today. Um, I genuinely so wish you and, and, and your colleagues well in the, in the work you're doing, both in, in the sort of the cancer space, but also if you've you know, got any sort of, uh, make any uh, progress uh, tackling to COVID, that's going to be fantastic. Um, so very, very interesting. I mean, certainly your, your, your thoughts and um, insights around, so you're working in China. I think that's going to resonate with uh, lots of uh, colleagues in the industry. So, um, so, so that's great. So if after you know, uh, listening to this broadcast, you're, uh, you've got questions for either me or, or, or for Stephen, um, please click the link at the, at, at the end of the video and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, get your feedback. Um, it will help shape these uh, conversations in healthcare to make sure that they're, they're useful uh, for, 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 for everyone. So um, that, that, that would be most helpful. Um, and you know, if you'd like to actually sort of tune into other episodes, again, follow our LinkedIn page because we'll be putting regular updates for um, uh, the, the release of uh, future episodes. Um, so you know, join the LinkedIn page and, and you can follow us there. So in closing, I'd, I'd like to, to, to thank Stephen again for uh, taking the time to, uh, to join us and also thank the, the listeners for, for, um, uh, for joining and, uh, and tuning in. And I'd also like to say uh, thank you on behalf of uh, Clarivate and DRG. Um, a big thank you to all everybody in the healthcare system who is actually working really, really hard to you know, tackle and treat uh, COVID because clearly, you know, this is uh, an unprecedented uh, health emergency. And I think we're all very, very grateful for all the efforts everybody in the healthcare ecosystem is doing. So, so th thanks very much. Um, until next time, uh, stay safe and healthy. Uh, I'm Mike Ward and I'll see you in the next episode.